Good evening, everybody. My name is uh, Jeremy Dixon, and I'm one of the co-directors of the Centre for Death and Society. Thank you very much for coming to this presentation this evening with Professor Ken Doker. So Professor Doker is an emeritus professor at the Graduate School of the College of New Rochelle, and he's also Senior Vice President for Grief Programmes for the Hospice Foundation of America. Uh, he's a very well-known author in the field of death studies and has written a lot about anticipatory grief. Uh, so we're very pleased to have him with us this evening talking about new trends in understanding anticipatory and disenfranchised grief. So I'm going to hand straight over to Ken and Ken is going to speak for about 40 minutes or so and we're then planning to have around 20 minutes of questions. So if you could add any questions that you have in the Q&A box uh, at the bottom of your screen, that would be great. And we'll take them at the end of the presentation. So uh, I'm going to share the slides and uh, hand over to Ken. Good evening. Um, it's hard for me to say that. I'm in New York right now. So, um, so I'm looking at uh, two o'clock in the afternoon here on a bright sunny day in New York, uh, a lovely sort of... Um, post-summer spring day. And um, and again, I'm honored and delighted to be speaking with you. I have a soft spot in my heart for England in that I have a, a good friend since I was 15 who I periodically come to visit in London. Uh, he was in New York at the time and um, always look forward to, to going there, uh, as well as uh, really lots of colleagues in the London area and in England in general. So again, it's a delight to be here today. And uh, as we move to the next slide, what my goals are today are to really do two things primarily. So one of the things I want to do today is talk about anticipatory grief uh, and reviewing a little bit of the history, the challenges and the modifications to that um, and some of our new understandings of that. And also I want to talk a little bit more about disenfranchised grief, uh, some of the trends and some of the developments and define that as well. So let's get right into it. We only have a limited amount of time. And anticipatory grief really comes from uh, one of the really, how would we say it, one of the really early articles in, in grief, a 1944 article uh, by Eric Lindemann. Um, I would hold that that's probably a, a, a good candidate for maybe the, the first empirical study of grief. And in that study, Lindemann primarily looked at uh, a number of different people, really uh, looked at what how people experience grief. Um, much of his sample came from a traumatic event, uh, a, a fire in a in a Boston nightclub in nineteen in the nineteen forties, uh, where a lot of young people died, and he interviewed a lot of those survivors. And but he also interviewed people in hospitals, and and one of the things he noted was that uh, almost just in a cryptic note is that sometimes people can have grief in anticipation of a death, as many people in the hospital were dying of cancer and the like. And for a long time, almost 25, over 25 years, um, that idea was really not um, not really studied much. But in the 1970s, um, the work of Robert Fulton and some others, we began to understand or he began to identify the concept of anticipatory grief. Um, and as the next slide came, soon after the concept was developed, there were a lot of um, concerns raised. Um, many, many people, uh, first assumed that if you were grieving uh, in anticipation of, of a death, so if you had a patient who was dying of cancer, you knew death was, uh, the prognosis was 
was certain. Um, the notion was that you started grieving then. And by doing so, the assumption was that um, grief would be easier at the time of the death. It would be shorter. It would be less because you've gone through some of the grieving process, really. And uh, that was later described as sort of a hydrostatic uh, model of anticipatory grief. And the notion was that there's just so much water to, to so much tears to cry, so much grief to experience that the earlier you experienced it, the less you had at the time of death. And of course, um, that really was not supported by the research, uh, as you can well imagine. Uh, as a matter of fact, part of my early research was was some of, and I've been in the field for about uh, 50 years. I always like to say I started at five, um, but um, but I was a little older than five. Um, I'm actually 75 now. So it started when I was about 23, uh, my interest in the field and, and my work in the field. And um, and one of my studies, for instance, had an interesting result, and it was um, it was just a fortuitous accident. It's probably one of the most important things that came out of that study. But we were looking in that study not about anticipatory grief at all, but we were looking at uh, at um, what happens. Uh, what we were looking for in that research was we were looking at the role of grief adjustment and participation in planning of funerals. In other words, the hypotheses really dealt with the more you planned um, and, and participate in the funeral, um, that would be expected to be therapeutic and, and maybe grief adjustment would, would be easier. Um, and, and just to really get behind understanding the factors behind the death and then, uh, and then going to measure grief adjustment, one of the questions we asked was, um, did you expect death at the time it occurred? And it was really interesting because people would say things in the beginning, uh, in the early part of, of the, the interview, they'd say things like, um, he was sick for a long time, he had cancer of the pancreatis, uh, he was down to 80 pounds uh, from uh, almost double or, or two and a half times that weight. And then when you ask that question, do you expect death, um, do you expect the death when it came? A lot of people wrote, no. And as the next slide shows, that began, that was part of this, this kind of finding. Uh, and so Therese Rando, another very prominent researcher, a good colleague and a good friend, wrote, anticipatory grief is a misnomer, but useful nonetheless. And what she did is she reformulated, she preferred to, to talk about it as anticipatory mourning, but she described it as a parallel process that's experienced by the patient, the family, and the caregivers. And what they're mourning is not the anticipation of death, although that's certainly part of it, but they're mourning also um, the fact that, um, that in the course of the illness, they've already experienced lots of losses, and we'll look at those losses in a minute. Uh, and parallel to that, uh, a person by the name of Gerber wrote about what he called anticipatory bereavement as a complementary process that goes along with that. And what he meant by that is while anticipatory mourning is, is a more subjective process, anticipatory, anticipatory bereavement is that people are making plans uh, about what needs to happen after their death, maybe plans about the funerals, um, maybe plans about what they're wearing, maybe plans about what the family should do. Uh, for example, one of my good colleagues died very young. One of my good friends died very young, a childhood friend. 
uh, died in his his thirties, and um, and he had a young son who was uh, about five years. Uh, is actually he died the day before this boy's fourth birthday, and I was the the child's godfather. And my last meeting with him, he really. Um, you know, as much as I wanted to maybe talk about other things, he really wanted to instruct me. He really wanted to say, now, when I die, this is what I need you to do for Keith. This is what I need you to watch. These are some of the roles I want you to take in his life. And that would be an example of this parallel process of anticipatory bereavement. As the next slide indicates, um, you know, uh, Rando talked about the tremendous amount of losses that one experiences within the illness process. And think about that, within the illness experience. And these losses are both tangible. Um, you, you have to give up certain kinds of, of jobs maybe, you, uh, certain kinds of activities that once were significant to you, as well as is intangible, things that had meaning for you. Um, you know, um, I remember having another friend who died of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, and um, and and in Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, one of the things that happens is you gradually lose um, uh, muscle control. And he talked about the fact that um, that one of the things that he regretted was he could be hugged by his children, but he could no longer move his arms to hug his children. Uh, and his wife said to me at the time of the funeral, even worse than Kurt's death uh, was the loss of his power of speech. And I understood that. Kurt was, we made friends with Kurt. We met, met the family on a camping trip. Uh, and, and one of the things we both enjoyed doing was just getting together around a campfire. And he was a fascinating conversationalist, um, interested in anything that you had to say and making significant contributions to the conversation. And I could see why his wife said that as, as he died. Even worse than his death was when he lost the power to communicate, when he lost the power to speech, of speech. He could no longer have those, those meaningful conversations that even existed in the course of the illness. Uh, next slide, please. And also think about from the, the, the standpoint of the patient, uh, excuse me, of the patient's family. Um, Caregiving, the process of caregiving involves a lot of losses. Um, you lose your independence. Uh, you can't just go out uh, and decide you're going to take a walk or, or stop at the store. Um, if, you're, if you're taking care of someone who's pretty much physically dependent on you, um, that means everything has to be timed. You have to make sure you have coverage. You, uh, you can't do those spontaneous things anymore. Um, you know, and, and that loss of independence even works for the uh, for the person who's getting care. I always say one of the dirty secrets of caregiving is that not only is caregiving difficult on the person who's giving care, but it's also exceedingly difficult on a person receiving care. When we're 60 years old or 70 years old or 80 years old, and we've been independent for that time, it's very difficult to think that somebody may have to change your diaper or, or do that. And that leads to another sense of loss, uh, the loss that we experience in trauma, the loss of the assumptive world. Um, you know, when we make our vows, nobody says to us, and will you promise to, you know, when the time comes and if the need comes, that you're going to change your spouse's diaper and, um, and feed them with a spoon. Uh, 
You know, that's not part of our expectations of how our life's going to end for the most part. And then we may lose friends. Um, and again, not because, um, just because we're out of our, our normal range of activity where we can't go out anymore. We can't um, really support and bolster those friendships and, and, and really spend time with friends. And so friends fall off. And then of course, uh, depending on when the illness strikes, we may have financial uh, and lifestyle losses, things that we could do we, we can't do anymore. And then of course, finally, as the next slide indicates, that, um, that we may have caregiver burden. And, and this is a good thing to be aware of, especially if you're involved in any kind of activity that involves home care or hospice care, um, or especially hospice care at the home, uh, which is I think much more common in the United States in our model of hospice. Uh, than it is in, in England. But I'll look forward to some of your questions and some of your discussion uh, to verify that. And it's interesting, one of the concepts in, in the United States that's gained credence is what we call caregiver burden. And that's what makes it tough to be a caregiver. Uh, and of course, some of those will be of no surprise. There are a number of, of objective factors. Um, Sleep disturbances are one of those. You know, if you can't get a good night's sleep, it gradually adds increasing stress to your life. Uh, incontinence, again, it's it's uh, it's very difficult to deal with incontinent adults. Uh, dementia, of course, is a major factor in caregiver burden, as well as people who just are non-ambulatory. So, you know, every every attempt to move, whether they're trying to go to the bathroom or uh, from a wheelchair to bed. Um, involves some significant uh, physical labor on the part of the caregiver. And as important as these things are, um, probably more important, or actually what the research says is most important, is the subjective quality, the past relationship. So when you're working with people who are caregiving, this is one of the critical uh, tasks to really do. Uh, have a sense of what their objective aspects of burden are and what maybe can be assisted and what maybe can be helped, but really explore the past relationship. Uh, you know, if your uh, mother was a wonderful supportive mother uh, throughout your life, um, she was a wonderful mom when you were growing up, wonderful mom when you were growing up and, um, and just, um, you know, uh, when you got older, she was always there for support. Uh, if you needed help, she was there. She was there to babysit the kids. And now she needs your help. Well, for most people, it's kind of, hey, you know, payback sometimes tough, but she was there for me and I'm going to be there for her. But if your parent was abusive and difficult, um, it really becomes, or your spouse, it really becomes very, very hard uh, to, um, to deal with and take care of that person. Probably one of the most uh, glaring examples I ever had of that was a woman uh, who really didn't believe in divorce. And that was of the era she was, you know, she was married in the thirties. So that was an era when, you know, divorce was really kind of considered much more shameful in the United States than it is, uh, is now. Uh, and uh, she was Catholic and she didn't believe uh, spiritually in divorce. And, and so this was a case I had in, in the late eighties and her husband uh, within a few months of marriage turned into a raging alcoholic and she stayed with him and then he developed uh cancer of the liver uh and and uh 
and the like. And, um, and of course, the first thing he did uh, had to do was get sober. Uh, and, um, and he became one of the nicest guys that you ever met and, uh, and constantly thanked her and constantly said, I don't know how you stayed with me all those past years. Um, but to her, this was, as she called it the last tease. Um, you know, this was the man that I married. This was the man I could have lived with in 50 years rather than this this alcoholic sop who was constantly losing jobs and constantly put us in. And so it almost became a teaser to her that, you know, that this is the life I could have led. Uh, and now he's showing me that one last time. Uh, and what good is it now? So there was a lot of anger about that. And, and every task just brought up uh, every task that she had to do just brought up a tremendous amount of resentment. So just to sum up that part of anticipatory grief, uh, what we want to really emphasize here is that if you look at anticipatory grief in the old way, the notion that you're projecting to the death and you're grieving the person as if the person died, um, that's not the current understanding of anticipatory grief. <clears throat> what it really is, and, and as Terry Rando says again, it's a misnomer, but useful, is that just to remember, in the course of an illness, people are experiencing a wide range of losses, and those losses matter. Let us move on then to disenfranchised grief. And disenfranchised grief is a term that I coined, and I'll tell you the history of it a little bit very quickly. Um, and what, what the history of it is, is that, um, is that many, many years ago, uh, actually in the, in the early 80s, I was teaching a course on the aging family. I taught in a graduate gerontology program. Uh, and as we we're talking about the problems of widows, one of the women in my class, and my class were probably not unlike many of the people who are maybe uh, on the other end of this uh, of this talk, um, they were often experienced therapists, um, people with a wide range of personal and professional backgrounds. Our program tended to attract uh, students going to school often to to validate the jobs they were already in, um, and so. Uh, you know, so it's an interesting class, and I like to think a lot of mutual learning went on. So as we were talking about the grief of widows, one woman uh, raised her hand and said, if you think widows have it tough, you ought to see what happens when your ex-spouse dies. And to be honest, I had never thought about that. What happens when your ex-spouse dies? It was what I call a two-by-four moment. It's like somebody's sort of slugging you with a two-by-four. And I said, really? I said, um, I said, what what happens when your ex spouse dies? Uh, you know, can you are you open to share it in the class? And she said, yeah. She said it was terrible. She had we've been married for twenty five years. Uh, we were planning a twenty fifth anniversary cruise, and one day, I came home from work early and found him in bed with a neighbor that I also considered a friend. Uh, and she said, what was really bad about that? She said, is I went to the funeral. But there was no one, uh, you know, people didn't know how to handle me. I was the ex-spouse. Um, and, um, you know, uh, the the person who was presiding over the funeral, the priest talked about the fact that uh, he was leaving a wife and children. And she said, yeah, um, you know, my children, uh, the children that I raised, the the children who are in my custody. And and the wife was the um, was the person who was involved in, a, in in an extramarital affair with him. Um, and I thought this is interesting. So I, I went and did some research on ex-spouses and, 
and found that many ex-spouses talked about the fact that they had a relationship, but that nobody recognized it. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Let me think about another group that I could study. And I said, what about if you go on the other end of that triangle? What about if you're involved in an extramarital affair? And then, uh, and then your, uh, your lover dies. Well, those of you who are research-oriented will realize how hard it is to find that sample. Uh, so I ended up broadening the study. Um, I did find some, but people are involved in dyadic romantic relationships, intimate relationships without the benefit of marriage. That included gay and straight couples. In, in those days, gay couples in the United States could not legally wed. Um, and, uh, and, and, and when I talked about that at a conference and presented that paper to a conference, uh, and I mentioned the fact that these people had a loss that was not socially sanctioned, openly acknowledged, or publicly mourned. They had really no right uh, to recognize that loss. Um, people came up to me after and said, this is like when my coach died, or this is when this happened, or this is when that happened. And so then I put together my first book on disenfranchised grief, which talked about both different kinds of relationships and death losses, but also acknowledged a whole series of non-death losses where this can happen. And the term disenfranchised grief uh, caught on and uh, a lot of research was done, some by me, uh, lots by other people, uh, all intriguing. Um, and it was it is now recognized as one of the risk factors in more complicated grieving patterns. Uh, next slide is one of my favorite cartoons. Uh, I don't know if you ever had the far side in England uh, but here's this guy whistling a happy tune in the midst of hell. And one of the demons says to the other one, you know, we're just not reaching that guy. But what it reminds us of, what disenfranchised grief reminds us about is that every society has grieving rules. And these grieving rules, and some of them are even codified in bereavement leave policies. So, you know, when I do this to a group where I can interact with, um, I will always say, you know, how many days do you get off for the death of a spouse, a child? Um, you know, and people will shout out three, five, whatever it is. Parent, you know, three, five. And then I'll say, how much do you get off for the death of your absolute best friend? And of course, the answer is none. And how much do you get off for a serious divorce? And the answer is you get a vacation day, maybe, if you want to take it. Um, so it really reminds us of the importance of grieving rules. And these grieving rules, as the next slide indicates, is that it's acceptable to grieve the deaths of family members. If a family member dies, you are supported in your grief. But beyond that, not so much. And as the next slide indicates, there are a number of dimensions to the concept of disenfranchised grief. Um, and for instance, uh, when I developed it, I'm a sociologist by training, a clinical sociologist. Um, I described it as a sociological concept. Society doesn't validate that loss. But then a number of other colleagues um, weighed in on that. And for instance, uh, Kaufman, uh, Jeffrey Kaufman talked about the intrapsychic dimension, that sometimes we disenfranchise our own grief because um, we don't think we should be mourning this. Uh, I had a, a woman once who came to me and said, I think I'm going senile, not a term we gerontologists like. And I started giving her a sort of mini mental. Do you know the day, day, time? Do you, you know? Uh, and she said, it's not that. She says, my dog died. And every day I wake up crying that the dog's not there. 
Um, well, that's understandable. We can become very attracted to pets. But to her, that was not an appropriate cause for tears. Tom Addict talked about what he called the political dimension of disenfranchised grief. And he meant that with both a small and a big P. The big P was that sometimes in, in certain societies, um, you cannot mourn. So for example, um, a good example of that would be in Stalinist Russia. I'm just reading a book about Stalin. Uh, if you're a relative or if even if your spouse was arrested, um, your best bet in, in that society was to uh, thanks, send a letter thanking comrade Stalin for exposing this rod in your family before it seriously involved anybody else. Any outward expression of grief um, signaled you as a potential traitor. And then he uses small p too, how sometimes people without power can, uh, people with power can disenfranchise grief like a clergyman. And, and I'm a Lutheran clergyman who gets up and says, um, you know, you shouldn't be grieving. This is a, this is a, a homecoming, uh, no tears. Well, you're disenfranchising the very real aspect of grief. Niemeyer and Jordan talk about empathic failure, saying somewhere there's a disconnect. Uh, and then the next slide is a contribution by Martin, David Martin, who talks about that cultural refilling rules assign sympathy to victims considered above approach, above reproach. So I had one client who talked about the fact that she didn't even know how to answer the question, how many children did she have? Because she had five, but one of them was killed in a robbery, but he was the robber. He was shot robbing a store. And, uh, and again, uh, you know, so if you, you know, if you tried to talk about that loss, you'd say I had five, how, how did the other one die? He died in a robbery. I hope they got the guy. Well, he was the guy. So again, um, you know, these are important dimensions of disenfranchised grief. In my work, I developed four contexts, uh, five contexts, I should say, next slide. Uh, and then recently just added a sixth one, which I'll talk about in a little bit. First of all, we have lots of relationships that aren't recognized. As humans, we bond to all kinds of people in our lives, teachers and colleagues and friends and, you know, uh, all kinds of relationships. And when those people died, we're often considered secondary mourners. Other cases are where the loss itself is not acknowledged. So these can be cases like, for instance, we're getting better on this, but from others, not necessarily from fathers and other relatives. Uh, a perinatal loss. You know, now you could find cards for perinatal loss. 30 years ago, at least in the United States, or 40 years ago in the United States, you couldn't. Um, uh, divorce, non-death losses. And we're gonna, I'm gonna highlight a few of those in, in a minute just to show you some of those. Uh, sometimes the griever is not recognized. Sometimes we don't recognize the very old or the very young or people with dementia or people with autism. All who may grieve in different ways, but still grieve. Um, and then there are disenfranchised deaths um, where um, sometimes, as we're going to talk about a little bit later on, sometimes the behavior of the person kind of disenfranchises the death. So a person who dies of suicide, of a preventable illness, of, of homicide, um, especially if, if they died in the commission of a homicide, um, you know, these are, are, are deaths that people may not acknowledge or support. And as I said, I'm going to highlight some of these and then talk about some of them in a little bit more depth. 
And then finally, the ways individuals grieve. Uh, not David Martin, but Terry Martin and I, um, uh, Terry is unfortunately now deceased this last year, but Terry and I uh, wrote a lot about what we called grieving styles. Started out as a study of gender and grief and then realized that gender is a factor in how somebody grieves. Some people grieve more emotionally. We call that intuitive grievers. Other people grieve more cognitively or behaviorally. We call those instrumental grievers. And again, um, what Chuck Kaur says, a, a colleague and mentor of mine, is that we often disenfranchise instrumental grievers, the non-emotional grievers, early in the grieving process and intuitively, uh, intuitive grievers later in the grieving process. But there are also cultural differences. I'm very well aware of that. I grew up in a bicultural family. Uh, my mother is Hispanic. My father is Hungarian Protestant. And Hungarian Protestants are, you know, growing up in the most Catholic of, of empires, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, often grew up to be both entrepreneurial and very stoical, um, you know, uh, and, uh, and of course, that's not said of Hispanics. So uh, I always remember as a little boy, my father would sometimes, uh, you know, my, my, when, when we were at a family funeral, my Hispanic uh, uncles would pick me up and they'd hug me and they'd say, it's okay to cry, Canito. It just means you love the person. Canito means little Ken. And my and when they put me down, my Hungarian uncles would squeeze my shoulder and say, be strong. So the ways individuals grieve. Next, next slide. Just to give some examples of that, we can grieve persons we don't even know. Uh, certainly we can all grieve celebrities. Um, you know, uh, you know, many of you remember the outpour of grief, excuse me, for um, for Princess Diana, uh, even though probably many people who grieve never met her. Uh, we can grieve siblings or relatives we never knew, uh, potentially. Next, next slide, Darcy Harris reminds us of what political grief is. You know, we can grieve the political state of affairs. We can also grieve relationships that are affected by political differences. In the United States, we've become far more polarized. And one of my British friends uh, often claims that American parties, which once were big tents uh, overlapping, have become uh, highly polarized now. And, uh, and, and in unfortunate cases, many times friendships have, have been destroyed. Um, another example of a non-death kind of grief that people experience, uh, next slide, would be uh, the grief that's involved in transitioning. Um, you know, as people transition from their sense of, uh, from their birth gender, they may experience all kinds of secondary losses uh, and, and others may experience, you know, um, this is, this, this, this daughter I have now is not the son that I had who was born. So again, they may experience a tremendous sense of loss. And then we also have to acknowledge as part of disenfranchised grief, in our next slide, developmental losses. Uh, as we age, we constantly experience losses uh, as we give up different activities at different points in our life. Another type of, of loss is what we might call uh, disenfranchised deaths. Next slide. And this would include, for example, stigmatized death. Uh, a stigma Goffman defines as a visible or invisible mar mark that mars character. And, and certain kinds of diseases that can be perceived as caused by actions or failures to act may inhibit support. So for example, I served on a lot of uh, 
during the during the midst of the AIDS pandemic, I was involved in a lot of pediatric uh, pediatric AIDS task forces, uh, and I always hated the term uh, that these were the innocent victims of the pandemic. Well, um, and and again, you know, um, if you have innocent victims, the implication is that you must also have um, guilty victims. Uh, so you know, uh, and that was always a, a a cause of concern for me. Uh, think of a person who dies of lung cancer. What's the first question that is asked? Did, did he or she smoke? And if they did, um, the assumption is that they don't get the same level of support. And even now with COVID-19, um, when somebody dies of COVID, the first question that's asked is, did she or he get, get vaccinated? And if they didn't get vaccinated, again, they seem to bear responsibility. And you might say, well, in, in many ways they do. But the truth is that many chronic conditions have lifestyle factors, but not all of them uh, result in disenfranchisement. Uh, next slide, please. So again, uh, we also have what we call this the difficult dead. Um, so for example, some, some of you may remember the infamous Moore's murder in, in England. And Ian Brady, um, killed five children um and he wanted to, as he was dying in prison he wished to be cremated and his ashes strewn on the uh on the moors uh, where he where he'd left many bodies uh and the authorities said no he he was cremated without a funeral uh and his ashes dropped um in in the sea at night in the united states we had a similar case um you may remember the Columbine shootings and the two perpetrators of that, two teenage boys, uh, Klebold and Harris. Uh, their funerals were very private. And one church decided they would um, they would create a grove for all 16 people who died at Columbine. That includes the 14 people who were killed and Cleopold and Harris. And that gesture created a huge uh, reaction and... Um, and what ended up happening is two of those trees were chopped down as a way of saying, no, Klebold uh, and Harris are not going to be part of, of this memorial. Next slide, please. So again, we, we recognize uh, this and, and we see that in, in, in and uh, many cemeteries, for example, are even reluctant to, to bury mass murders. So, um, so again, you see those kinds of slides. As we move on to the next slide, um, I'm not going to go through this with great depth, but you have it, um, and there's lots more, of course. But for example, we've seen lots. One of the great things about developing a concept is, in some ways, it's like birthing a child. You're always surprised uh, where it goes and what happens. Um, and a number of studies have identified disenfranchised grief in a number of populations, including, you know, uh, all of those that are listed here. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and even uh, extending to the last bullet, um, college students, uh, college professors, when a student dies, um, I, have a, I have a case of that myself where uh, I still carry some guilt. I had a wonderful student, older student, older woman in my class uh, who had done excellent work. And, and one semester she was, um, she was really falling behind. And, you know, many times I reached out to her, I said, is there something wrong? And, um, and, you know, she said no, but, you know, I could see something was going on, but, you know, she, she wouldn't tell me. And uh, at Christmas break, I found out she had died. Uh, and I always felt bad that I, 
uh, that you didn't trust me with the information and, and that maybe I wasn't as supportive as I could have been had I known. So I had my own grief on that. Uh, and of course, we have to make a couple of points. Next slide. That the degree of disenfranchisement um, depends. So for instance, maybe when somebody died of AIDS, uh, maybe a partner died of AIDS, maybe the family, the biological family was not supportive, but maybe people in the gay community were. So you always want to assess levels and sources of support. But here in the next slide is the paradox of disenfranchised grief. And that grief is often intensified, but the usual ways we support it are not always acknowledged. And I want to bring up one more recent notion, uh, some work I've been doing recently in the next slide on what we call what I've called disenfranchised trauma. And of course, as we indicated before, next slide, um, that, that what makes trauma different from grief is trauma is grief plus. The assumptive world that we usually have is we like to see the world as safe, predictable, and benevolent. And, uh, and so in trauma, not only do we have the loss of something or someone that was very significant to us, but we lose that sense of safety. Uh, and that's what makes it. And, and so in trauma, there are a number of contexts in the next slide of disenfranchised grief. And we'll look at each of these individually. When the trauma is perceived to be preventable, when there are legal and social constraints, we might talk about trauma in the hierarchy of loss, shame and stigma, and then trauma disenfranchising other losses. So, uh, you know, when trauma is received to be preventable, uh, again, the failure to vaccinate, um, one of the great cases uh, of this that we had in New York, uh, not in New York, but the United States, was if you engage in risky or unwise activities. So, for example, some of you may remember the horrible uh, so, uh, story of Otto Warmbier, who traveled to North Korea, uh, and allegedly stole a poster uh, and ended up uh, being imprisoned in North Korea and probably something happened. I suspect maybe a beating uh, or multiple beatings. And of course, uh, he he died. Uh, he was he was released, flown back to the United States already in a vegetative state, and he died soon after that. Um, and again, it was interesting to see how well, many people in comments, you know, uh, on, on the internet were uh, empathic and sympathetic. Uh, others said uh, he had no business going there. What was he thinking? And if he was there, why would he do something stupid, like try to steal that? So again, you know, trauma, when it's preventable, is conceived to be uh, uh, maybe disenfranchised. And then there are social and legal constraints, as the next slide indicates. Um, you know, that at least in the United States, um, we have an adversarial legal, legal system. So uh, if your best friend dies in a car, uh, and I had a young client like that, and you're a driver, um, you, may, uh, you may be advised legally not to have any contact with the family, even though you want to say, I'm, I'm really sorry, and I wish I could, you know, all the things you'd want to say, but you, you don't have the opportunity to do that. Your, your grief is disenfranchised. Um, and then shame and stigma. Again, you know, um, some examples may include domestic abuse or traumatic events that, you know, that take place in stigmatized experiences. Um, but, you know, we know that many victims of domestic abuse uh, often are very reluctant and ashamed to talk about um, their experience. And then grief in the hierarchy of loss, as the next slide indicates, uh, is important. Um, you know, so again, um, Loss has a hierarchy. Loss has a hierarchy. 
and first responders may be disenfranchised as attention is focused on, on caregivers. Um, in public tragedy, other losses may be disenfranchised. Uh, so for example, my aunt died on September 12th, 2001. Uh, literally right after the, um, the, 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 the terrible terror attacks of 9-11. And so when I mentioned I was going to a funeral, people would say, oh, is, um, did they die in 9-11? And I said, no, my aunt died in her 90s and in bed surrounded by her family. And they almost lost interest. Even the priest at the funeral uh, made the comment of, um, of, this is not one of those tragic deaths. But to us, it was tragic. And uh, I did the ceremony at the graveside. And uh, my family jokes about that as the rebuttal. I said, no, for us, this death is tragic. This was the last of that generation. This was our family's matriarch. Uh, next slide. So what are some of the criticisms of disenfranchised grief? Well, um, Jack Cameron talks about, well, you know, can you really enfranchise? What's the actual business cost of that if you allow people to take off for a whole range of deaths? Dana Cable, a good colleague of mine, um, talks about the danger of trivializing grief. That if, you know, if every loss, if we look at loss in every grief, uh, that, um, that maybe we lose the significance of grief. But as I said, with the rise of non-death uh, losses, um, that that has become, uh, you know, I think less of concern. Um, and then finally, uh, Tony Walter and Robson talk about what they call grief hierarchies, as the next slide indicates. And these slides are, you know, that that the concept of grief, concept of disenfranchised grief, should not be understood as as binary. And we've already talked about that. That, um, and they suggest it's best understood as grief hier hierarchies. Um, and that is certain kinds of grievers have a more primary role than others. Um, I, I like Robinson's and, and Robson's and, and Walter's work tremendously uh, and uh, generally. And, 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 you know, and my only criticism of their work here was that it primi primarily dealt with one form of disenfranchise where the role is not recognized. But I still think it's an important point. To sort of conclude and, and open some time for questions next, one of the things that's been very nice for me and and very you know uh, uh, that I'm very happy about is that it spanned uh, a lot of other work that where people have um, have kind of um, uh, acknowledged that the work on disenfranchised grief spurred their interest Darcy Harris in non-death losses Pauline loss in ambiguous loss that's where somebody goes missing or you're not really sure um, uh, if the law what what the loss actually is uh, chronic sorrow, people who live constantly with loss, like having a, a non-infinite losses are the same kind of concept by, by Bruce and Schultz, where you're essentially living with an ongoing loss, like having a child with uh, intellectual disabilities or severe physical disabilities, where grief spikes and peaks at different times. So finally, I want to leave you with the charge of disenfranchised grief. Uh, and, and that's our last slide for today. And you know, as therapists, as counselors, our job is to help enfranchise the disenfranchised. And remember, as caregivers, that often may include us. So thank you for, for listening to uh, uh, what was a few minutes longer than I had hoped, but, uh, but nonetheless gives us ample time, I think, for questions. Great. Thank you ever so much. Uh, that was a great presentation, Ken. So uh, we've got quite a few questions here. Um, 
So I'll start with one by uh, Cass Humphreys-Massey. She says, I'm interested in how these frameworks of anticipatory and disenfranchised grief apply in chronic illness experiences, i.e. a health condition that is long-lasting or permanent, life-impacting, but not directly palliative. I suspect disenfranchised grief is quite applicable, but I'd really value your thoughts. Yeah, this would be the work really of, um, this would be the development of the work we talked about by um, by Susan Roos in Chronic Sorrow and, and Schultz in, in, and Bruce in Non-Finite Loss. You're, you're living with this loss constantly, and of course, you may experience all kinds of losses. Think of having uh, a child with intellectual disabilities, and uh, you know, and again, as her as age peers are starting to look at colleges and 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 careers, um, you know, your child is not, and so that kind of spikes your loss. So, uh, so yes, I I, I think that that person could um, uh, Cass, I think, would do well. Uh, to uh, to see some more directed work in that field, and again, Susan um, Susan Roos's chronic sorrow and uh, and non finite losses speak directly to that. Great, thank you. So the next question is from Jan Fish. Uh, so Jan writes: If one of Warden's ideas of the tasks of grief is to accept the reality of death, so does having the chance to know that someone is going to die for a longer period of time if they are able to begin to let themselves know that, would this mean that the, the after the death, this task might already have begun? Okay. Is it possible to use the term anticipatory grief for this? The opposite might be a sudden or an unexpected death where there might be no chance to anticipate this event. Well, that was the original understanding of disenfranchised grief. Um, so that was the original understanding of disenfranchised grief that, you know, that the, the more you grieve prior, the less, uh, the more you were able to accept the reality of death later. But research hasn't really supported that. Certainly traumatic and sudden deaths create that issue, that it certainly is harder. But again, many people who are dealing with chronic illness may still find it hard to accept the reality of death uh, when it occurs. And, and in some cases, you know, you've lived with this for so many years, you just think you're going to live with it for so many more. So again, um, the research doesn't support that idea. And, and one of the ways we've reframed the concept of anticipatory grief now is to acknowledge that the losses that people have experienced, to acknowledge that the anticipation of loss may be an issue, but it, it doesn't seem to affect grief subsequently. All right, thank you. So uh, the next question is from Paul Ord. He says, thanks for a fascinating talk, Ken. I'm interested in the idea that the various losses experienced prior to death bear some relation to how the loss that death itself constitutes is experienced. To me, these seem to be losses of a fundamentally different order. On the one hand, losses within existence, often of agency it seems, and on the other, the loss of existence itself. Is this a helpful or reductive distinction, do you think? And do you have any other further thoughts on this? Yeah, well, I, I think that really points to the thing that we, we pointed out before. They are different types of losses. And again, we mourn all the losses we experience in the course of an illness. But but again, they're within the experience of illness. The, the loss of a death um, still can strike us very hard even after a long illness. So I, I think we're, we're saying the same thing here. Right. Um, so there's a question here from Tharin. Uh, Fenwan. Uh, so 
uh, Tharon says, has the framework of anticipatory grief or disenfranchised grief been applied to the multiple losses amongst people with dementia, for example, of personhood, loss of social identity, etc.? Yeah, and I think both of those kinds of uh, of losses can can be both. You know, certainly um, as you experience dementia, uh, you 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 have that sense, uh, and family has that sense of, you know, we we've lost the person we once had, and and even in the early stages of dementia, people can experience um, persons with dementia with the opening stages of dementia can experience that sense of anticipatory grief as well. Um, and also, you know, uh, the fact that their grief may be disenfranchised. So I think both of those concepts are different, but both of them have applicability. Yeah, I think I think we all acknowledge now um, that pet loss can be a very, very significant loss to people. So, um, you know, and and I, I know many veterinarians um, who will actually send uh sympathy cards at the loss of a, of a pet, you know, especially a pet has been euthanized. Um, and, um, and, and I've always appreciated that when, you know, I've always had pets and, you know, when we've had that moment, I would appreciate that. Um, so there's so, a couple more comments here. So uh, there's, uh, if I just read them out, just in case people yeah. can't see them. So there's one from Anne Francis, who says, in my experience, acknowledging the losses which occur over the illness journey empowers people to grieve their own life. It replaces them at the centre rather than focusing on the post-death grief of family members. It's hard, especially for women, to allow some of it to be about them. Yeah, I would agree. Okay, there's a comment from Polly Hall uh, who mentions that she's interested in the grief of adoption triad, especially adoptees who were not raised by their bio parents and disenfranchised when they die. Yeah, uh, you might want to read um, Darcy Harris's uh, work on non-death losses. She has a few articles uh, about adoptive parents. So yeah, and uh, and the sense of of their loss of their family of origin may also be a disenfranchised grief. Great, thank you. So there's a question from John Troyer, also from uh, a member of CDAS. Uh, so John asks, in relation to complicated grief, do you view prolonged grief disorder and complicated grief as synonymous? No, I I think um, uh, it's a good question. And the answer would be that I think, uh, and matter of fact, a number of us, including uh, Steve Fleming, Therese Randall, Colin Murray Parks, uh, who I consider the grandfather of, of grief studies, wrote an article a number of years ago um, where we, we talked about this and we said uh, prolonged grief disorder is one of the variations uh, of complicated grief. And I suspect over time we will find more. Um, you know, obviously, uh, Grief effects are uh, morbidity and mortality. That's a complication of grief. Um, Post-traumatic stress disorder is a complication of grief. Um, depression, as the new DSM-5 uh, TR shows, is um, or DR uh, even before TR, DSM-5, is a complication of grief. Um, separation anxiety is a potential complication of grief. Uh, and, you know, and adjustment issues, uh, especially early on, are a complication of grief. And as time goes on, we may discover other complications of grief and they may end up in the DSM, uh, future DSMs as well. OK, so Helen uh, Mann says, thank you for a wonderful talk. I wonder what your thoughts are on femicide, grief when a body is not found. OK, um, I think that's a complicating factor, um, certainly to grief. And uh, and in some cases, am I, uh, uh, you know, where you and that's what um, what also um, Susan Roos talks about as ambiguous loss. 
when you don't have that body, there's always this sense that um, that maybe something happened. Maybe that person is still alive. Um, now we put a lot of emphasis in the West on uh, on on the uh, on the uh, on the body uh, more so than you know. A number of years ago, I had a fascinating experience where um, uh, after the many years after the Vietnamese war war. Um, North Vietnam, uh, the, the Republic of Vietnam, Republic, whatever, uh, um, Vietnam and the United States drew closer together. Um, and uh, and I was asked to come to a conference. The Vietnamese were doing everything they could to deal with the issue of MIAs, but they really didn't understand. You know, their notion was they're dead. You know, they're dead. We know they're dead. You know, you can look anywhere in the country for you know, for, for people, but they're not here anymore. You know, they're, they're dead. Uh, and um, why is it so important to find the bodies? And, and they really didn't get the same sense. Uh, so my job was to talk about um, Western approaches and how the body is, the presence of the body is very important. It was a fascinating conference. Um, and, uh, and I learned a lot from it. Uh, it involved a, a number of countries who had MIAs, uh, and a number of countries where MIAs were were were, were there, and it was just um, uh, it was also in Hawaii, which is a wonderful place to go to. But it was it was fascinating on so many levels. Share a quick story about that. Yep, go for it. Go for it. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I learned at that conference was that um, the Russians, as you might expect, had some people on some special forces on the ground advising the Viet Cong. Uh, and every once in a, and the um, when I finished my presentation, the uh, Vietnamese ambassador and there were ambassadors there. Uh, it was an ambassador level conference. Turned to the Russian and uh, Russian ambassador and said, "What Doctor Doka said does that involve? Um, would would that hold for Russia as well?" And um, and the Russian ambassador said, "Oh yes," and you know and talked about some aspects of how the in orthodoxy. Uh, and this was after the Soviet, you know, the Soviet Union had collapsed, and he said and talked about orthodoxy and and the importance of the body in orthodoxy, Russian orthodoxy. And then he said, well, sometimes we find bodies, and we send them to Hawaii. That's where we have a DNA laboratory, and they'll say um, it's it's a Caucasian, but it's not one of us. It's not one one of you know not not the United States, not the Allies. It doesn't match anything in our DNA bank. And um, and the Russian ambassador, and, and he said, and we try to give them to you, but you refuse them. Why do you refuse them? And the Russian ambassador said, um, we had nobody on the ground in Vietnam. And the ambassador said, I'm Viet Cong. He said, I was there. He said, everybody knows there were advisors. Why don't you just, you're not even the same country anymore. Why don't you bring back these people? And he just said, we had nobody on the ground. Fascinating. The language of diplomacy. Thanks. So the next question is uh, from Megan Stevens. So uh, she says, something I've seen a lot recently, which I think fits into the concept of disenfranchised grief, is late diagnosed neurodivergent people, for example, autistic or ADHD, expressing grief for the version of themselves who could have been diagnosed and supported in childhood. I, I agree. I've done work with both of those populations, and I think they're uh, often disenfranchised. And, I, and again, when I taught, I used to say people may grieve in different ways and demonstrate their grief in different ways, but it doesn't mean they haven't experienced the loss. I would certainly support that. Okay, so we have a um, question here from Sal Mercer. Uh, 
Family members who experience the death of a relative in prison can be offered outwardly supportive um, communities, but have their grief complicated by post-death processes. What are your thoughts on this? I would agree. Yeah. And uh, and that particularly can be the case. I know in England, there's um, I think executions are no longer uh, death penalty is no longer given. But there are some areas in the United States in which it is. And um, there's some wonderful work on um, death row inmates and, and the disenfranchised grief of their families. Uh, now, I'm just going to see if I can quickly get the author of that. Give me one second to see if I can find it. And I just did it, Sandra Joy. So uh, so Sandra Joy has done some very interesting work on that. Um, so question here from Georgie Akehurst. What you mentioned about anticipatory grief and individuals not expecting a death made me think about how literature concerning traumatic deaths often compares these deaths to unexpected or anticipated deaths. This makes me question this expected, non-expected binary. What do you think? Yeah, I, 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 um, I think that the fact that a death expected doesn't mean that um, that's it's, it's it's expected when it occurred. And I always like what Therese Rando says. Um, says many people die today suddenly, and then she adds in chronic illness. Uh, so in other words, you you don't expect them to die, but yet, but yet they do. To me, the heart of trauma is what I said. Trauma not only. Um, it, it challenges our expectations about the world, not just about the suddenness of the loss, that the world can be you know, unsafe. When I'm often talking in a hall, there's often a, a chandelier. When I'm talking about trauma, I'll say, imagine if that chandelier just fell and it killed somebody. I said, everyone, you know, those of you who knew the person who died might be deeply affected by, by their grief. I said, but everybody in this hall would never walk into a hall again like this and not know where all the chandeliers are and likely not sitting near under any of them uh you know so that's what we that's the difference in what trauma is to me great so we've got a question here from tal morse how do you see the role of mass media in disenfranchising grief especially in relation to extraordinary death versus ordinary deaths or deaths of public interest versus private deaths um, not sure how to really respond to that. Uh, you know, I, I think the media, of course, you know, can have a role in disenfranchising grief, um, particularly, um, when, you know, in, 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 when, when, uh, the person who died is, uh, is, is vilified, um, um, yeah. And, and, and of course, certain deaths, those of celebrities certainly may have the role of at least, um, at least for some people, validating grief. Great. Compliment by somebody who calls themselves an anonymous attendee uh, yeah. who says that they've always loved your work and they find it really um, useful with their undergraduate social work students. Thank um, you. Yeah, and that's good to know. Uh, and a question here from Moira. Do you feel direct cremations may negatively impact people's grief experience, especially for those not involved in this decision to have no service? Yes, yes, I, I really worry about that, to be honest with you. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot we can do to make funerals very relevant. And, 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 um, but the, the absence of rituals, you know, I, I always say when I talk about that, um, there's a book called um, The City in History. 
Uh, and it starts with a particular anecdote that says the first permanent settlements of humankind were, were, were burial sites. Uh, that nomadic people would come back to the same place each year and bury their dead. And, and of course, the author of Mumford, the author of the City and History, is making the point, this was in the 60s, if we don't solve the city's problems, that they're going to be morgues again uh, or burial sites again. But but the point, the other point that I think he, he doesn't intend to make, but he makes, is from the beginning of prehistory, we realize that humans have always had rituals to bury their dead. And I think we forget that lesson at great peril. Right, so I'm going to make this next one the last question, and it's um, by somebody calling themselves Live On. Uh, they say, do you think there is any significant difference of disenfranchised grief among cultures or countries? In Japan, where I live, bereaved people who lost a family member due to COVID can't show up in public. It seems really different from the US and UK. Yeah, I can't speak to Japan, but certainly, certainly, um, you know, if you look at, at grief, culture is one of the major influences on how we experience, express, and adapt to grief. It even affects our level of attachment. Um, you know, in certain cultures, certain attachments will be stronger than other attachments in, in a different culture. Um, you know, so for example, um, I, I, don't, I don't have enough time to develop an example right now, but yes, I think culture is certainly, certainly a significant influence. Uh, and in different cultures, different losses are disenfranchised. As I said, I'm half Hispanic. In Hispanic culture, we take godparenting very, very seriously. Uh, you know, um, as I said, when my godson's father died, uh, his mother was half Hispanic as well. And she came up to my house with a four-year-old in tow and said, you're his godfather. Let's talk about the role you're going to play in his life. And happily and, and very agreeably, I think I, I played a, a large role in his life and I'm very proud of it. He's like a second son to me. Um, but the point... Uh, and my brother, my 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 son looks at him as, as kind of his kid brother in many ways. The point I'm trying to make is that in different cultures, different things may be disenfranchised. So if I said to an Hispanic person, I lost my my compadre, uh, I lost my compadre, my compadre, my godmother or godfather, they would say, oh, I'm really sorry. Uh, that you know was that a significant relationship where somebody else may say, oh, OK, were they an aunt or an uncle? You know, uh, uh, you know, so we, we have to recognize the cultural influence and in forming attachments and what's important and how we grieve and how we adapt to grieve is a critical variable and a critical component. Thank you very much. Um, so I'd like uh, to thank uh, Professor Doka for uh, coming this evening and, and speaking to us. Um, there's been a you know, great demand for your work and it's um, you know shown by the large attendance here this evening. Um, I'm sorry if you put a question up and we didn't have time to answer it, but I think we could have gone on for uh, you know a lot longer, uh, perhaps. So just lastly to say, uh, Professor Doka's talk is the first of three talks that we're doing uh, on ambiguous loss. And next month we have a, a talk about migrant deaths and grief activism, and then uh, a further talk in November on death and disaster. So uh, we will put those in our newsletter and it's on the website if you would like further details and uh, would like to book a ticket. So um, finally, thanks again, Professor Doka. No, and I we hope you. you'll join us again. Thank you. And uh, and I would look forward to joining you sometime in the future. Have a wonderful day, a wonderful evening, everybody. And uh, 